0: just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17 not without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store, and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to BrainStuff, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, BrainStuff, Lauren Vogelbaum here. In the United States, the right of adult citizens to vote and elect public officials is one of our most hallowed principles. Or, at least, that's what's taught in middle school civics classes. In reality, though, there's another tradition that goes back even further in American history, finding ways to keep people from voting, whether through arcane laws, tricks and hoaxes that prevent eligible voters from going to the polls, or even open intimidation and violence. In some ways, voter suppression, as such efforts are called, goes back to the earliest days of the country. Only 6% of the U.S. population was eligible to vote in the first presidential election in 1789. That's because most states only allowed white male landowners to vote. In the 1800s, the property requirements started to fade, and over the next century, people of color and women legally gained the right to vote. But local and state governments came up with a variety of ways to limit who actually got to participate in elections. And efforts to restrict voting continue even today. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, a New York-based think tank and civil rights advocacy organization, since 2010 alone, 25 states have passed new laws making it more difficult to vote, such as by reducing the number of polling places and the hours that they're open. One old method of preventing people from voting is to require them to pay a tax for that right and to make it just high enough to be prohibitive. In the early 20th century, most of the former states of the Confederacy imposed such poll taxes. The amounts weren't that high by contemporary standards. Uh, Virginia charged $1.50 per year, which is about $11 in today's money, while Mississippi charged $2, about $15 today. Even so, the taxes had to be paid in cash, which amounted to a hardship for sharecroppers, miners, and small farmers, who generally bought food, clothing, and other necessities with credit and never had more than a few spare dollars in their possession. Additionally, in Virginia and other states, the taxes were cumulative, which meant that a prospective voter had to fork over the cash for several years in a row before being eligible to register. In 1964, the ratification of the 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibited poll taxes, but it wasn't until two years later that the last four remaining state laws were struck down in federal court. Although outright poll taxes are now illegal, the issue of needing to spend money to vote intersects with modern tactics of forcing citizens to travel further to access their polling place or requiring voter ID. At least 36 states now have laws requesting or requiring voters to show some form of identification, such as a driver's license or other government issued ID. Advocates of such laws promote them as necessary to prevent fraud at the polls but critics charge that they're intended to keep young people and minorities, whom studies show are less likely to have such IDs, from voting. In some states, obtaining ID can cost as much as $60, and even in states where the cards are free, licensing offices are often in places that are difficult for people without cars to reach. In addition to the cost, the types of acceptable identification can be confusing too, or can favor voters of one party over another. In Texas, for example, a handgun permit is considered acceptable identification, but a university ID card is not. And it makes a difference. A September 2014 report by the U.S. Government Accountability Office found that black voter turnout in Kansas dropped by 3.7 percentage points more than white turnout after a voter ID law was passed, and that the number of 18-year-old voters dropped by 7.1% more than it did for voters ages 44 to 53. In the post-Reconstruction American South, officials who wanted to keep black people from voting came up with another cleverly cruel trick. They imposed so-called literacy tests, which ostensibly were intended to make sure that only voters who could read and write, and thus were adequately informed, could cast ballots. But since formerly enslaved people seldom had been allowed by their owners to learn to read, the literacy tests effectively disenfranchised many of them. The first such test was created in 1882 in South Carolina, where voters were required to fill out a ballot for each office, such as governor or senator, and then put the ballot in the correct box. The boxes were continuously shuffled to prevent those who had learned to read from helping those who hadn't yet acquired the skill. As more Black people became literate, though, officials came up with even more bizarre tests, such as in Louisiana, confusingly worded instructions that the prospective voter copy out a sentence using alternating cursive, print, and capitalization. Some southern states continued to use such tests up until 1965, when the Voting Rights Act made them illegal. Southern states came up with other tricks to make it difficult to register to vote. They required frequent re-registration, as well as street addresses with names and numbers, which many people living rurally didn't have. In the North and West in the late 1800s and early 1900s, officials used similar tactics to keep immigrants from participating in the electoral process too. In California and New Jersey, for example, immigrant citizens were required to present their original naturalization papers at polling places. Elsewhere, authorities closed polling places and registration offices early so that industrial workers who commonly worked 10-hour shifts in those days wouldn't be able to make it in time. And in New York, officials prevented Jewish people from registering by designating Saturdays and Yom Kippur, during which Jewish religious observances take place, as registration days. An ongoing method of suppression involves pruning names from the voter rolls. Before the year 2000 presidential election, state officials in Republican controlled Florida hired a private firm to go through the state's voter registration rolls and delete names of people who were deceased, registered in multiple places convicted felons, or declared mentally incompetent by court proceedings. But as a subsequent investigation by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights detailed, the hired checkers made numerous mistakes and deleted many voters who were fully eligible. The commission report doesn't specify how many voters were deprived of their rights unfairly, but the deleted voters disproportionately were African Americans, who tend to vote Democrat. In the Miami area, 65% of those deleted were black people, who represented just 20% of the population. White people made up only 16.6% of the purge list, even though they amounted to 77.6% of the public. And in 2020, a report by the American Civil Liberties Union found that Georgia had removed nearly 200,000 names from the voting lists after concluding wrongfully that those people had moved. But the last tactic that we're covering today intersects with a number of other issues in equity and justice, the practice of banning felons from voting. As many as 5.8 million Americans of voting age can't cast a ballot because they live in states that bar anyone with a criminal record from voting, even after they've served their sentences. About 2.2 million of those disenfranchised voters are Black, and Black people are convicted and sent to prison at twice the rate of the overall U.S. population. In 2020, just two states allowed prisoners to vote. Most of the rest allow them to vote after their sentence, parole time, and or probation are served. In another 11 states, convicted felons automatically lose their right to vote and may only get it back under certain circumstances after an appeals process or after any outstanding court fines and fees are paid, which can be a huge hurdle. However, this is one vote-suppressing restriction that's slowly giving way. Over the last two decades, about two dozen states have changed their laws and enabled more people with criminal convictions to regain their rights. Today's episode is based on the article 10 Ways the U.S. Has Kept Citizens from Voting on HowStuffWorks.com written by Patrick J. Kiger and Catherine Whitbourne. BrainStuff is a production of iHeartRadio in partnership with HowStuffWorks.com and is produced by Tyler Klein. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app